you know, looking back on it now, it's very clear that that's acceptable to give feedback to even somebody who's, you know, a managing partner. Everybody has trust in the process and everybody wants the feedback. So that's the other thing is everybody wants to get better and they want to see you get better. And it's kind of an intangible thing, but you, you can feel that. Hi, this is Alexandria from Sacramento, California. You're listening to You're a Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast that helps you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Welcome back. In today's episode, Ian Harvey joins Brent Bean and Matt Masterson at the Region Atlantic office in New York to break down the benefits of having clearly defined career roadmaps. Brent walks us through their employee career track process, and Matt shares his experience going through it. In fact, it was their unique approach to career track building that drew Matt to Region Atlantic in the first place. He's since grown as a wealth advisor and is now pursuing management roles with the goal of becoming a partner in the future. As you can see, both of our guests believe that clear, well-planned career paths benefit both the firm and individual employees. Whether you're a new planner looking to learn more to find a firm with well-cultivated career tracks, or you're a firm owner who wants to implement a similar system, this episode is a must-listen. We hope you'll be inspired to grow your own career or cultivate someone else's. We're here today to talk a little bit about career tracks, um, why it's important to the firm, why it's important to the employees, um, and get a sense for what your journey has been with career tracks. How has it evolved? When did it start? That that sort of thing. So, Brent, maybe you can take us through the initial thoughts on the career track. When did it get started? Um, and how did how is it set up right now versus maybe what it was like? You know, so it actually started before I even joined the firm, and I've been with the firm now since two thousand five. So, fourteen years. The firm itself, the original evolution was there was basically one team. Um, very similar positions to what we have today, but I mean, it was literally, you know, seven, eight people. Um, and obviously, as we grew bigger, then you started to have, we call it uh, similar to biology, mitosis. So two or three people from each team, from that team would split and you would hire new folks in to fill these fairly clearly defined roles. Right. And so the career path really had been and they've had different names, but in today's terms, we call it analyst, which would be your entry level um, person. And just talk a little bit about the evolution there. You know, I went to Texas Tech University. You know, got a degree in planning, and so you know, back in those days, it was rare that companies would hire people right out of school without a book of business or an insurance background. So. You know, when I joined Region Atlantic, we were hiring a lot of people from these financial planning-based programs, Virginia Tech, Texas Tech, uh, Kansas State, et cetera. And so the evolution there really has now evolved into we're typically really only looking for people that have two to three years of experience, ideally with another RIA in financial planning. The next um, level from that point would be a team manager. Um, so on an external basis, uh, and Matt is a team manager who we'll speak with, um, they're also recognized as a wealth advisor. So that person tends to have a minimum of five years to maybe 10 years of experience, again, primarily in financial planning at another RIA um, or internal. Obviously, our main talk today is that an analyst would move to a team manager. Um, and at that point, the person is really responsible for running the team. The evolution there really has been that the teams have grown 
And so now that role has a lot of managerial responsibility where before maybe it was a lot, uh, you know, it revolved more around the idea of putting in all of the tasks that were needed and where did that evolve? You know, where did those tasks, uh, where are they today? Is it is it the bottleneck, the wealth advisor, the analyst, the client service administrator? Um, at this point now, those teams have anywhere from seven to nine people. So the managerial skills are really important. And all the while that person is also developing higher end financial planning uh, and a lot more client interaction and actually to the point to where then we're transferring clients to mm-hmm. that, well, that wealth and manager slash team, I'm sorry, wealth and that team manager slash wealth advisor. And uh, from that point, then moving up into a, a wealth advisor without the team manager responsibility. So uh, at essentially that role, they're two primary responsibilities, the primary contact for the client, and then also growing the firm, bringing new clients to the table. Um, and then obviously we're a partnership, and so partnership is would be the ultimate level so it's three big steps that's your analyst associate level your team manager level and then move on to partner that's right. uh, wealth advisor wealth advisor but not every wealth advisor is a partner so right and, and you could also be a partner without being a wealth advisor okay operations marketing sure that's great so there's opportunities for non-financial planners so to speak right within financial planning firms well right said. let's continue on with the firm mm-hmm. Why a career track? Right. What's important for the firm? What, in your view, is important for the employee? And then we obviously have Matt here, so we'll ask Matt your response as the employee. What's important to you, maybe, as opposed to what's important for the firm? Right. You know, I think particularly for Region Atlantic, that culture is mm. is a primary driver of this. And so one of our um, core philosophies is to be better. And so when you think about that in the context of growth, <clears throat> We really have to have a career path for the firm so that people have opportunity to grow when they see it. And we tell you know, most everyone that we interview with that if we're not growing, then why would you stay, right? Because if we're not creating opportunity for you, then are you really the best? Um, and so we basically mandated that as an organization that you know, people have to grow and we've got to create this opportunity. So having a career path there is key. And I think for the employee, it's a, an easy corollary to that, which is if you're going to hire the best people, they want to know, you know, what is the opportunity for growth? I've got to earn all of this. Sure. Um, but ultimately, you know, this is a firm that's got a de- you know, demonstrated history around people moving right through that career path, having responsibility and ownership. Yeah, um, from the employee standpoint, so the career path was part of what drew me to Regional Atlantic uh, in the first place. So I had started out a smaller firm, um, which was great in terms of getting hands-on experience. Um, but, you know, after a few years, you kind of say, where, you know, where am I headed here? Um, and so the draw to come to Region Atlantic was that there was a defined path to, you know, become a, a full-time wealth advisor, you know, and then hopefully eventually a partner. Um, so that was really attractive to me, just the transparency into that process. Um, and I think that's pretty unique versus a lot of the other firms out there. Once you start working and you have an employee come in and they start and they're just working, right? So they're an analyst and they're doing what they're told. Then the review process happens. 
And then it's about managing progress, right? Because to your point, it's about follow through. We said we were going to get you to this level and assuming you do the work, we get you there. How does that review process work? Yeah, so we, again, are an evolution. Um, we used to use an Excel spreadsheet where we had four or five major components and we would touch on each of those and try to determine where somebody was mm -hmm. uh, in a certain uh, role. Today, which I think we should focus on, is it's, yeah. it's much more sophisticated. We use um, a system called performance culture and performance culture uh, you know, has allowed us to custom tailor the way that we do our reviews. So for each of those roles that I mentioned, analyst, team manager, wealth advisor, we've now broken those into levels and certain requirements within each of those levels. So if you think about it conceptually, Ian, if I were to explain it, it would be, you know, we've clearly determined in the previous review where someone falls. Analyst level one, analyst level two, analyst level three, team manager one, two, three, well, et cetera. Okay. And then we've all got templates now that are created that once you're in a particular level, so you've moved on from the previous level and now let's use an example of but let's use Matt since he's with us. He's <laughs> clearly a team manager level three, right? So everything previous to that, he's mastered in our opinion. So now when we're looking at his review, we're simply looking at level three team manager where he looks to be and then looking ahead to level one wealth advisor mm -hmm. um, to determine, okay, now there's so much overlap. I mean, Matt is right on the precipice of getting, <laughs> yeah. uh, promoted to a, a Wealth advisor. Okay. Um, you know, so that, that performance culture is really key, and we've gotten very granular around what are those activities that mm -hmm. demonstrate mastery at a particular level. So, well, if I'm an analyst one to an analyst two, can you give us a sense of what those different roles and responsibilities, sort of in those more micro jumps, might look like? From a financial planning perspective, um, you know, the Tier one analyst is you're really just attending our financial planning committee meetings, um, you know, doing a lot more of the data entry, getting to know the software. Um, by the time you get to tier two, we really want you to be a participant at those meetings. Um, you know, maybe even hopefully bring starting to bring ideas to the table. Um, you know, if we have thought leadership ideas, starting to author blogs, things like that, um, and be able to participate more in the client meetings. So not only inputting the data. But then, you know, let's have the conversation with the client and explain the plan to them and what the data actually means. Mm -hmm. um, so that'd be an example on the financial planning side. Yeah, that's awesome. So how has your experience been through that? Then? So you went, what, where did you start? Where are you now? And sort of how has your, how's that felt along the way? Sure. Um, so I came in to regional Atlantic as a team manager. Um, so I kind of done the analyst work at my mm -hmm. prior firm. Um, and so when I, I came to Region Atlantic, I think I had a, a pretty broad knowledge of a lot of things. Um, but what I realized in the career path process is, you know, I should really need to start to focus and get deep on certain things. And for me, that was the financial planning aspect of it. Um, so I, I really started to be, you know, participant and do a lot of thought leadership in financial planning. That eventually led to me chairing our financial planning committee. Um, and it's allowed me to create an identity as an advisor, um, as somebody who's really strong technically. And, you know, um, I think my expertise really lies on the tax side. 
Um, so I've been able to kind of use that and start to develop business that way as well. So it's mm. you know, you know, been a pretty rapid development for me. So you've had a chance to not only develop as a financial planner, but also develop in the firm, take more of a leadership role. Yeah. How has that process worked? Or have you enjoyed that process, I guess, the opportunity to be a part of the firm? Yeah, I have. And I think it's, you know, to eventually become a partner, I think it's a really important part of the process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we all spend all of our time doing training on financial planning and investments. And, you know, I never took any formal training in terms of management. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that part of it is, was new to me. Um, mm-hmm. and probably it's the part I struggle with the most. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can say, you know, looking back on it now, three and a half years is I think I've come a long way and I still have a long way to go, but, um, it's been a good experience because I think in order to take the next step and, you know, hopefully the step after that is you need to have that component of it. Sure. Um, you know, if you want to be involved in the day to day of the firm, you have to learn how to manage people and the right way to do that. And, um, yeah, that, that's probably the most challenging piece of it. So was that a desire on your part to be part of the firm as well as growing, you know, as a financial planner? Or was that more of a, hey, you're going to work here and you're getting team manager. You'll be a wealth advisor soon, hopefully partner one day. You need to be part of the management process. Was that sort of a give and take or was it you wanted it or you needed it? <laughs> yeah, for me, I think it personally it was I wanted it. Okay. Um, and But I think it's. It's always part of the process. So even mm. if you don't want to become a partner and just want to be a wealth advisor and better yourself as a financial planner, I think it's still worth going through that process. And you have to go through that process because when you become a wealth advisor, you're still going to have your analysts and your operations folks and marketing, and you still need to work together and learn how all that works. And so being the team manager position, um, get thrown into the fire, but it's a good experience regardless if you want to be on a management track down the road or not. Right. Yeah. And if I could just add to that, I mean, cause Matt's going to be really humble. Um, the, and this was something that I think is important for the audience, which is, you know, we've got this clearly defined career path and it's broken into levels and there's certain criteria. Um, but it isn't just checking off a list. So if is people think about being a partner of a firm and owning the firm and how that, and I don't mean just monetarily, but taking ownership of it. You want your other partners to feel as strongly about the clients and the people that you work with as you do. And Matt exhibits that. You know, so um, you ask a great question, Ian, about was it him or us? We don't say to people, this is what you have to do. Mm -hmm. You've got to demonstrate the ownership. But it's a complete intangible that we're looking for when you're looking to make someone a partner one day. And so, you know, while Matt started to get involved in the financial planning committee and later elevated to co-chair and now he's chair, he also helped us set up a trust company, which we're about to launch in March. And he wrote a tax paper about the tax law changes and he's done webinars. And, you know, it seems like he's carved out this place where if we need a go-to person for something, it's Matt. Yeah. So if you take your, a step back and say, okay, as a partner in the firm, is that somebody you want to be a partner with? Hands down, you know, so, you know, I don't think unique to Region Atlantic, but certainly important is that we want people to take the initiative um, to do those things, to better themselves and better the firm. And, and then it's a no brainer when it comes down to making a decision on a partner. Mm. So if I am an employee who, you know, wants to be a part of this process, but maybe doesn't, isn't feeling that 
possibility for me. How does that conversation go with describing what it means to be a demonstrative partner, even if you're not an implicit or explicit partner right, right now? That's a great question. Um, you know, maybe I can point back, and I'd love to get Matt's take on this too. Yeah. We have culture sessions within the firm. Mm-hmm. Um, so monthly we're taking on, and we'll, you know, each month we meet, we break the firm into three different groups. We've got about 52 employees. And so we try to change the, the dynamics of each of those groups so that people aren't in the same group every time. Mm-hmm. Uh, because once you get to our size now, you don't always have as much interaction. And so we'll take a topic like feedback, mm-hmm. which is immediately jumps to mind. So we read a book called Thanks for the Feedback, and it's very scientific around the way that we process feedback. And you know, so if we can demonstrate culturally and start to you know, set the example around, we want to have an open dialogue around that and people should feel comfortable. You know, so the way that that hopefully would work in, look, we're not perfect. I, I know it doesn't happen all the time, but hopefully it happens a lot more than it doesn't, that someone could share that. Um, okay. And that also that there would be a safety around, look, if, you know, we are a firm about growing and developing, et cetera. And so if someone, you know, the demonstrative piece of it may not be, uh, you know, as front and foremost, but I think you can tell when somebody's there, they just, you know, don't need to sing to the mountaintops. Right. Um, there's going to be a place, but, you know, if people aren't growing and taking initiative, then it probably isn't the right place. And that could be further on down the career. And so you want to handle that with as much compassion as possible. And you know, how can we help you get to where you need to be if this isn't the right place? But no one's going to tell you that if they don't feel comfortable. Right. Um, so it's about creating that culture right. where it's not a, an annual review process. It's almost a consistent 360 review or so, opportunity. <laughs> oh, and I love that you said that because one of the, you know, Matt knows this because we work together on the same team for some time. I don't ever want somebody to be in a meeting with me in a review and hearing something for the first time. Mm. Right. And hopefully we've set that tone across the firm which is, you know, whenever it happens, it's most beneficial to the person, whatever it may be, good or bad, that you address it then, because trying to say, well, in a six-month review, yes. four months ago you did this, I mean, yeah. how does that help? You know, so it really should be a 360 all the time talking about it, and so nothing's ever a surprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right, and I think from an employee perspective is, you know, having the transparency into that process. So, you know, with the performance culture system is the reviews online, you can go read it whenever you want, even mm-hmm. if we're not in the review cycle. Um, and so it's very clear about where we agreed we need to work on together and, you know, what you're doing well. And so you always have that kind of in the back of your mind. And then because we do have that open culture is that, you know, folks are not afraid to, you know, reinforce those things um, mm-hmm. when they come up. So. It, you know, we have the formal review twice a year, but it really is more of a 360 kind of full transparency. And that helps as an employee grow too, because I know from past experiences, you do your review, right? And then you look at it six months later when you get together again, and it's like, you don't even remember what you talked about. Yeah. Um, and so this just has a lot more staying power. And I think it helps all of our employees grow. How did you go about creating that kind of culture? Gosh, it was probably five or six years ago. Actually, one of our founding partners, who's now retired, um, started bringing concepts to the firm. I don't think we called it culture at the time, okay. um, but 
things that he'd learned over his career. You know, he had a lot of opportunities to go to various leadership development, et cetera. And um, it was something I was always certainly passionate about. So I took it over from him, uh, you know, probably five or five years ago, let's say. And again, the evolution was, okay, so what is our culture? Mm -hmm. And if Simon, if you heard of Simon Sinek, which Mm -hmm. you know, so back when he was talking about why you do what you do, that was one of the early type culture sessions we had where people we started to understand, you know, people went around and talked about why they do what they do, and you saw this common theme amongst region. Mm-hmm. Um, so it became more of a concerted effort around, okay, let's have these culture sessions every month. Let's switch the people up, because at the very least, just getting together with folks that you may not work with on a day-in, day-out basis and talking about the firm or what they might be going through is, you know, builds that cohesion. And... Then probably three years ago, we started, you know, as I realized, like, what was most effective, it became, let's take a topic and spend three to four months on it, because we would have these great conversations, and just like anything, it's like going to a great conference, right, and you come back, and you have all these other ideas, phone calls, and clients, and the next day, you haven't implemented any of it, so the reinforcement was key, um, you know, so we've done a whole host of things, uh, You've heard of uh, Stephen Covey. Um, you know, he had a son who wrote The Speed of Trust. And so the way I looked at building the culture in these meetings, at least, was you know, what are the foundational elements? And it's like communication, trust. Mm-hmm. And The Speed of Trust is really interesting in the sense of you can make an economic case for it that if you've got trust, then ultimately everything is a lot smoother and a lot less expensive. You know, so. That's one of the things, speaking of career path, that we try to describe to someone who joins us new, no matter what the level is. As soon as I trust you, then I can hand it to you and I don't worry about it. If I'm worried about the quality or whether it's going to get done, et cetera, now it creates a bottleneck. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about that cohesion. So fast forward to things for the feedback. This was actually recommended to us by Performance Culture. And they had described that, you know, several of their management teams had read the book, but they never had a whole firm read it. And so we thought, well, we've got this great forum. And so the real concept there was, historically speaking, and these folks that wrote the book were um, Harvard uh, negotiation experts, and they wrote another book called um, Difficult Conversations. And so thanks for the feedback was they were consultants in these organizations and they would teach people how to give feedback. That was the way it was thought. And what they started to realize was the giving, while you need to improve those school skills, isn't where the real need is. It's the receiving, you know, because the receiver has all the control. And so this was a perfect topic for as we started to do more formal 360 reviews, et cetera. That I need to pull that information out of you, uh, not walk away and say, "Well, here's what I interpreted, and maybe it's wrong, maybe it's right," and the person giving it knew or didn't know. Um, you know, so we spent four months talking about it, and now it's part of the vernacular. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then some of that is at the end of those meetings, coming back and saying, "Okay, so how's this working for you? Like, give me an example of what you're implementing, or what are you going to work on next month?" Versus in the past, maybe we just educated on it. Mm-hmm. And then move to the next interesting topic. So we talk a lot about culture and this 
constant 360 feedback timeframe. On some level, there's a formal review, right? Where this is where you are right now and we'll come back to for a formal review at another time. Can you talk about that in-between process? So maybe you didn't reach the level you thought or there was some feedback that you maybe weren't expecting or maybe you were expecting, but even still feedback is feedback. Uh, dealing with that, taking steps forward and then maintaining or managing your process or progress, I should say, as, as that time goes on. Yeah. So internally, it's something I kind of look at at least every few weeks is just mm -hmm. to remind myself of what I need to work on. Um, and then I think to Brent's point, the reading the Thanks for the Feedback book was really interesting because I've noticed an uptick around the firm of people actually asking for feedback. Mm. Um, and you know the 360 review process sounds great, but that requires either somebody to give the feedback or for somebody to ask for the feedback, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very easy for you walk out of a client meeting and that slips through the cracks. Mm -hmm. um, you know you're worried about the five action items you have and the phone call you have in ten minutes. Um, I think everybody at the firm's made a point to ask for feedback, whether it's you know a partner asking the analyst for their feedback and take on a meeting, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And so that constantly reinforces it. Um, you know, beforehand, I don't. I think some, you know once in a while it would come up if there was something you really had to make a point on. Um, but now it's much more constant because people are actually it's top of mind, and people are actually asking for feedback after meetings. Um, mm -hmm. So that's been really important. I think keep it top of mind because you know the 360 process sounds great but it can very easily uh, you know, not be implemented and it can be nerve-wracking too right on some yeah. level as an uh, as an analyst or a team manager and you're providing feedback to the people who cut your check so there's a there's a trust there and a, and a level of respect right yeah. so can you talk about that for just a second coming from the employee perspective providing feedback to someone who might be more senior than you at a, at a firm? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, at first very uncomfortable, right? Um, mm -hmm. Especially being a new employee. Um, so, uh, you know, the team manager position, you manage the analysts um, and operations folks on your team, but you also have to manage up to the other advisors and mm -hmm. make sure that, you know, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. So that part of it's really hard. Um, I think it probably took me a good six to 12 months to really get Feel, feel for the culture of the firm and understand that that was okay to do that. Um, but, you know, looking back on it now, it's very clear that that's acceptable to give feedback mm -hmm. to even somebody who's, you know, a managing partner. Um, and so it just speaks to the culture of the firm. And so I think, you know, it really all comes back to that at the end of the day. Um, yeah. Everybody has trust in the process and everybody wants the feedback. So that's the other thing is everybody wants to get better. And they want to see you get better, and it's it's kind of an intangible thing, but you you can feel that. Well, I was just the one thing I was going to say that I think you hit on um, perfectly, Ian, and then Matt talked about it too. Is so let's just say it's Matt and I, and he provides me feedback, and I lash out or get defensive or say thank you, but then you know I I do something that undermines that. Why would he ever give me feedback again? Right, he wouldn't. I mean, it just, it would make no sense. So, and it doesn't mean that people don't, you know, it's not always easy to hear, right? So sometimes people may not be as open. Um, and so we talked a lot about when you do that, but if you don't set the example for that, then no one's gonna give you the feedback. So ultimately, again, I'm sure there are times where it occurs, um, but it really, you have to set the example as someone more senior, no matter what role, to say, no, I really want it. I, I 
appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the person's going to be comfortable giving it. Otherwise, the whole thing erodes. I'm really happy the conversation went this way, by the way. <laughs> I know we're not exactly talking about career tracks right now, right, but, really. it's, yeah. but it's fascinating to recognize how much culture is important, right? Um, you can set the career track all you want, but if you have you know, a, 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 an employee who's unwilling to provide feedback, then the 360 purpose is useless, right? Yeah, right. So as employees grow and they start to demonstrate thought leadership or they start to demonstrate these might be good partners. Um, what are ways in which you start to integrate them and create those opportunities? My assumption, and maybe my assumption is incorrect, is that if I'm 25 and I'm three years in and I've just started my analyst role, and then so I'm working at Regent for maybe 18 months, and I think I'd really like to be on a committee, but I'm not exactly sure how I get on one or is there an open role? So how do you create that opportunity? Maybe it's part of the culture too, but I figure it's worthwhile to dive into. Yeah, so Matt, being the chair of the financial planning committee, could talk specifically about it. I would say, and you define it perfectly. I mean, it really does come down to culture. That I, you know, I, I don't think you could honestly say that you look at people without any lens towards what their experience or age is, because that just isn't true. But I do think that culturally, we look at it as, look, you've got as much opportunity as you want to take, as long as you demonstrate that, you know, what you're doing is adding value and you're growing, et cetera. So by integrating, say, an analyst to your specific question into the investment committees and financial planning committees, we specifically assign them certain tasks. Uh, for example, in the investment committee, it would be an asset class that they would be doing a review on, or if we're, say, um, reviewing another manager or a different type of investment. It's, we really want them integrated into that process so they learn how we do the research. They may not necessarily want to be on the investment committee going forward, but they have to understand how we go about doing what we do because ultimately they've got to explain that to a client. Mm-hmm. The financial planning committee, again, I'll let Matt talk a little more about it. It's similar, but the idea you know, where somebody's trying to make their way if somebody has a passion, it doesn't matter to us whether they're 23 or 24, 25. You know, we've got a marketing team, and then we also have a freelance rider. You know, the sooner we can get people started that are passionate about writing about leadership, the better. Yeah, I think on the financial planning committee, um, you know, seeing it firsthand is you know, you're required to sit on the financial planning committee, but. It's interesting, you know, at least for the first 12 months, um, but nobody really ever kind of leaves in the analyst position because you want to be involved in those conversations and it allows you to have real input on the planning we're doing for our clients. And so, you know, it gives everybody a sense of ownership, um, you know, that they can really change what we're doing and, and have some real input. It also gives the analyst a great opportunity and visibility at the firm level. So if you come to the financial planning committee and present a good idea to the financial planning committee, odds are the next Monday morning meeting, you're gonna stand up and talk about it in front of the whole firm. And so, you know, now you're up in front of all your peers talking about it. And I think you know, that creates some, you know, real ownership or real impact. And so to be able to have that at really young age is, I mean, I think it's priceless. Um, it's a really good experience. So the career track is on underway. You're making the money you're making. A year goes by, you'd love to be making more, but you know, the money you actually get, right? So. And that's not to say it's bad. This is the reality, right, of our personal expectations versus what happens in reality. So 
Um, can you talk a little bit about patience and how you keep yourself patient and trust the process and stuck with region? It sounds like things are going really well. And so yeah. um, trusting the process and I, I think is very difficult for a lot of folks as they go through career tracks. So I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah, patience is definitely key. Um, but I think as far as trusting the process go, it's, you know, I've seen other people who have been in my shoes when I came on board and mm -hmm. since then they've been promoted. Um, and so, you know, that right there gives you a lot of trust in the process, right? It's working. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, you know, you a lot of the folks that are at the firm had started out in, you know, my role or at the analyst role. And so, there, there's real results there. Um, so that, that definitely allows you to trust the process. Um, but, and then I think personally, it's, I think you want to keep realistic expectations. Um, and I think from the firm level too, is that I think trying to keep realistic expectations is important. Um, so there's a time horizon on, you know, where you should kind of be for each year, but it's not to say that you know, you hit year five at team manager and that's it, right? Mm -hmm. It's, um, there's that intangible piece to it too. And so you have to keep that in mind. And you also have to keep in mind that it's a, you know, a larger firm. There's also got to be a spot open. Mm. Um, you know, they're not just going to create a new position for you. Um, so it's, it's a function of timing. And so, you know, a lot of it's, you know, out of your control. And so I think if the, as an employee, you have to keep that in mind. Um, but having the transparency around the process and actually seeing it work for folks um, is encouraging and that's, you know, it's kind of let me trust the process. So as we're talking about these expectations and setting patience levels for yourself, um, one thought that comes to mind is, are there income expectations at different levels? So if I'm an analyst, one, two or three to a team manager, what can I expect? Or do you set that for the employee or is it more um, irregular? Yeah, no, there are clear bands around that what we expect compensation to be. And of course, there are going to be outliers for different reasons. Um, we think, particularly in one of the questions that you asked on qualitative versus quantitative from a firm perspective. So qualitatively, yeah, we think it's important that people kind of know a range. Um, and then as a firm, when you're trying to build out, okay, so when's someone getting promoted? When do we hire next? How is this growth you, uh, you know, translating into building more infrastructure in the firm? Understanding what we're going to have to pay for that talent um, makes a lot of sense. And I would say just one, particularly for this audience, one granular piece is, um, and I think most people know this, the minute that you get out of a financial planning program, starting a, a financial planning firm, even if you don't have that background, and you get your CFP. I mean, your value goes up enormously in those first, say, three years. Um, and so we understand that from a, a compensation perspective that this isn't going to be just a 3% inflation increase, right? Because you're that much more valuable to the marketplace mm -hmm. early on. If someone matures through their career, um, and we like to think of what we put together like a law firm, right? We don't really want people out representing Region Atlantic as a full-fledged wealth advisor bringing in clients until they know everything there is to know within, you know, obviously you can never truly know that, but, and they're representing the firm in a way that we can be proud of, they can be proud of, so that's part of the expectation. And so then when they transition into a wealth advisor, a, a larger piece of their compensation comes from bringing new clients in. 
Um, and we're very transparent about how that compensation works. So someone can see from they hear a lot of its base and bonus, and then it transitions into a still a really nice base, but then the, the future is unlimited. And then talking about how does partnership work too. Matt, as an employee, is it helpful to get a sense of what those income bands are in order to set your own expectations? Maybe it keeps conversation around the office a little more easy around income, those kinds of things, but is it is it easier for you personally? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because you're not left wondering, you know, kind of where you stand versus other folks. And so it just doesn't, you know, having that insight and knowing that there are bands and where you lie in that band gives you, I think it does cut down on those conversations that can happen. Sure. Um, you know, it can be awkward and mm-hmm. uncomfortable, um, especially depending what side of it you're on. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's definitely helpful to have that insight. What do you do um, to work with your employees to build this culture that we are all in this together and while compensation is important, don't get me wrong, everyone needs to be fair, um, but what the firm needs, right? If, if you need to take the trash out every Tuesday and Thursday, then you need to do that. Um, maybe that is not that region, but I know some firms are, um, regardless of your level of, of, uh, that you've reached. So how do you do that? Yeah, so I mean, I think we are firm-wide bonus structure, you know, so ultimately people, um, every position gets compensated on firm-wide goals, and they're firm-wide. You you Mm. hit them or hit a percentage of them, et cetera, and so it's not individual, and so in some respects, culturally, that combats the, well, look what I did. Now, obviously, as a wealth advisor, and new clients that you bring in are attributed to you. And there is compensation for that. Um, But even wealth advisors have these firm-wide goals. So I think that's key. But someone that's very self-centered is just, you you see it kind of early on, no matter what place they come in in a career path, and it just isn't a good fit. Um, I was gonna say, I think a lot of it goes back to the hiring process. I mean, you know, when I decided to join Region Atlantic, I know it's not going to be the Matt Masterson show, right? It's right. it's about the firm um, ultimately, and the firm's been there, you know, thirty five years before I got there, and hopefully it'll be here long after I'm gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to have that mentality around it. Um, I think, you know, and personally, I have, you know, you always have internal competition, right, among your peers and sure. what they're doing, but it's you just gotta, I think, internalize that as much as possible, and then it, you just think about the, you know. Are you happy doing what you're doing and where you're at? And so I think if you try to keep that at the forefront most of the time, then you, you know, kind of breeds patience and just enjoying, you know, the path you're on. Um, but it's not easy for everybody to do that. If you like this episode, you can find more at fpaactivate.org and be sure to join the FPA Activate community on Facebook. It's a growing study group for financial planning professionals, from students to firm owners, professors, and board members. You'll find them all there where you too can lend your voice. We hope you'll join us and help grow the financial planning profession. Thanks for listening.